Welcome to When Life Falls Apart, a podcast where we journey through the transformative experiences of grief, trauma, and the messiness of life. Hey, thanks for coming to check out the show today. I have Stephen Uval coming in and talking to us about what it means to become a father. In our conversation, I found it to be very enlightening just because I think we see it everywhere. People love to become parents. It's such a wonderful thing. And for Stephen, this brought up a lot more existential questions about life and death and what it means to be a steward of another being. His journey through that into what he calls becoming father is quite profound. It involves holotropic breathwork, spirituality, sobriety, recovery, and even looking at the roles of masculinity and femininity and the ways in which masculinity has taken advantage of femininity for so long and what does that mean for a man to then be a father to a daughter. From all of this growth, Stephen and his wife Sarah have decided to travel across the country starting a project called Earth 8. This is a project where Stephen and Sarah talk with people and begin to engage the conversation of what it means to be stewards of the planet through how we eat, how we communicate with others, how we bring our intention of love into the world. If you want to learn more about their project, I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. I also wanted to just let you know that the audio on this is not totally that great because I forgot to turn on the microphone, which, of course, beginner's learning curve. Um, I think I'll always turn it on from now on, but I did get to capture the conversation on the computer microphone, and it actually came out pretty good. The content was so great, I didn't want to re-record. So regardless of any of the technical difficulties, I really do hope you enjoy this show. Thanks for coming. You're welcome. We're going to talk about an interesting topic. You're going to talk to us about fatherhood and all that comes with that. Can you just begin and start to say a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I guess I would call it becoming father. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, in retrospect, and much of what I'm going to say today is in retrospect, so I've had time to sort of be with it and think about it. Yeah. And then, of course, there's always current events. Um, in relationship yeah. with um, my daughter. But, um, you know, I would call it becoming father because it's not a place that um, I've arrived yet and it's been ever-changing. You know, it, I, I would call it one of the most challenging journeys, relationships, struggles, and yet at the same time, maybe the most awakening relationship I've ever been in. Um, it's it's for sure the longest term relationship um, in this close quarters that I've ever been with anyone. You know, my parents were young when they had me. I was raised by several different families. So um, I never had really had long term relationships with anyone. And Isabel and I now are going on eight or are now at 18 years of relationship. So it's been uh, quite a radical journey. So when did you find out that you were going to be a dad. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, I was in early recovery. I had met a woman um, that I worked at a restaurant with, and we didn't even know each other very long, very short time, maybe a month and a half. We were hanging out together. 
she had um, been suspecting and then had um, just recently told me that she was possibly pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then we actually went to um, the woman's clinic here in town and it turned out that she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the news was so overwhelming um, that I remember I had to, um, I actually left the waiting room and went out into the parking lot and just started pacing. You know, it was 18 years ago, so I don't know exactly, but I, I couldn't believe that it was occurring. It wasn't what I thought was gonna occur. It wasn't um, anything in the plan. And um, I had come from a lineage of abuse, particularly on the male side. And um, yeah, I was actually terrified. I was terrified. Somewhere in that moment, I thought I have to kill myself. There's no way that I can continue or even take a chance at giving her the life that I lived. So in one moment, you were terrified of this, but you still were thinking, and I can't carry on the lineage of this masculine pain that was passed down. Exactly. How is that? That's such a paradox. Right. It's like almost total self-centeredness, and then yet almost all total other-centeredness yeah that's it that's a great way to put it it was it was uh instantaneous consuming of self of just oh my god um uh me 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 what have i done and then all of a sudden there was a life it was the first time i had ever really like even thought that I would have an influence on someone else. I didn't think I had influence on anyone, which is, um, you know, quite a radical concept in and of itself, especially coming from a chronic alcoholic, <laughs> that to think I didn't have an effect on people. Um, but I, but I, I, I saw that I, I would clearly have an effect on this being and that um, I had to prevent any type of suffering that I would impose on her. On, I didn't know it was a her at the time, but on this person. So what happened when you found out it was a her? Well, you know, the interesting thing is we didn't, we didn't, so I had a dream that it was a her. So I had always known it was going to be a her and then it became a her. I remember being in the hospital, I can recall it right now, holding her in my palm with one hand supporting her head. And I literally looked and saw that she had a vagina. And I was like, oh my God. I like, basically I, I know even less what to do <laughs> than, <laughs> right. I, than I thought before. Like, you know. What did you see her fragility or I, her? I, you know, part of what I saw was everything that I had done to the feminine. All I had I had, in that moment, I wouldn't have been able to say it like this, but recognize my sexism, my patriarchal lineage, my, now in retrospect, misogynistic oppression of the feminine, objectified. And that I had objectified so many um, women in my life. People, not just women, people, but clearly women. Um, was my source of um, uh, alleviating my own pain. And I saw here was a young, a young woman to be. And then I was like, how, how, like, 
how will I ever, how will I, how will I ever deal with this? How will I ever handle this? How will I ever support this human being in becoming a woman when all I've ever done was take from women at that time? Yeah. yeah. It was something to that effect. Right. The overwhelming right. feeling. Yeah. All I know how to do with this energy, this form of life is to use or abuse or get something from. Get something from. And now you have to care and love and nurture. Stewardship. Care for it. Loving. Mm-hmm. Relate to. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I had ever even really honestly related to anyone. Truly. So just just knowing that I was going to have to relate to this being and that I was holding in our hand that it, there was relationship already occurring was beyond anything I could. I wanted to run out of the hospital. Because I was going to ask you, did you have a deep connection with her in that moment? And you're saying... You, you know, both. Yeah. I had a deep connection by the nature of that, that somehow I was part of creating her. Mm-hmm. And then completely disconnected because... What the hell is this? What the hell am I going to do? Like, I have no skills for this. What ended up happening after that? Were you living, all three of you, together for a time? Or? So, um, it, it, that, that story is so complex. At, at, when my daughter was born, um, we weren't living together. But a month after her birth, we all moved in together. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so here it began, you know, now I'm in relationship. So at the same time within the, that month, um, I, we got married. <laughs> so, so here we are yeah. with child. Yeah. We know each other for now. What is that? You know, t- nine months, t- 12, about a year. Okay. And we have this child and we're married. So the pressure was instantaneous. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and it was all-consuming, actually, the pressure, um, trying to be sober, trying to mm-hmm. deal with um, emotional content that I had never dealt with before. The same going for the person that I was with. She was trying to get sober, dealing with emotional content she had never dealt with before. And then here we have this um, new being. It was, um, you know, daily, daily I contemplated um, suicide. I had a sponsor at the time that I was working with very deeply, and I, I did for the, actually the next 12 years of her life with the same man. But um, I would tell him, I, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. So that was always in my dialogue, an exit strategy. What was the pain you were experiencing that was so overwhelming that that was an option? Self-centered consumption, uh-huh. of like having to take responsibility yeah. for one thing, yeah. for sure. And that's in retrospect. I would have said it was just because I didn't want to harm her. Mm. But it was because ultimately I did. I I, I could not be bothered with such a task. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like really, how dare the universe? The universe is out to get me. Why would you, like, don't you know that I was just going to get sober and travel the globe (laughs) and attain spiritual... uh, uh, realization. I played the victim card dr- t- tremendously. You know, I had been used to doing that. There was um truly victimization in my life, and I had um, um I had rooted into that pattern. And this was another way I could really root into the pattern of being a victim of circumstance. This isn't my fault, but now here I am. It was mostly that, and and clearly I didn't want to harm her. So it was more like. 
feeling like you didn't have any say in what was happening in exactly. your life and you felt like out of control with what was going on. And so maybe like having some choice and if you could take your life or not, it was some semblance of control. Yes. The contemplation of daily whether I was going to take my life or not was um, complete control. I, I, w- I was feeling powerless and out of control prior to the child just getting sober um, for the first time since I was 12 years old. And I was 34. So um, so that in itself, I, I felt like, uh, you know, I had a teacher at school. She said, you must feel like you've been dropped out in the middle of the ocean with no life vest. And that's exactly what I felt. I felt like, holy shit. And that the idea of killing myself, I think, gave me some sort of ability to deal and calm myself down. Because if it got bad enough, I had an out. I could control the out. We demonize suicide so much in our culture, but I hear you saying the fact that you had that allowed you to stay. I think it did. I really do. Um, I, I, I don't know if I would have ever been able to phrase it like that before, but yeah. I, I got to dance between the contemplation of living and dying, and that was an important, important relationship for me. So say more about that. Well... I was truly, you know, as one could before they actually do it, contemplating death, ways and why and how and um, wrote about it. And, and then the contemplation of life at the same time, because death is um, even if you're if when I was contemplating and I knew it was permanent, I knew that if I had made the decision, then there would be no other decisions in this form that I would ever be able to make. I would never have had a chance to get out of what I always had wanted to get out of, which was tremendous suffering and, uh, and um, self-inflicted victimization. Um, for, I wanted freedom, and I knew that that wasn't actually really freedom, and I didn't get it until I could dialogue about it, first with myself, and then um, with my sponsor, who really didn't know how to deal with something of that magnitude, but I, I was taken care of in all of this. Um, it was a constant dialogue with myself, so it actually... It actually led me to the commitment to stay on the planet because I saw the futility of just bailing out Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't get to um, explore possibility. And for some reason, I wanted I wanted the possibility of freedom. Suicide was uh, at first a perceived freedom until I really sat with it, until I really looked at it, until I really sort of um, without doing it, bathed in it, so to speak. You had to surrender to that yeah. desire without preconceived ideas about it and really get to know it Yeah. before you could make a real decision. Yeah. Yeah. And so was there a, an event that might have occurred that was a turning point around this or yeah, was it a gradual a, process? Well, there was a clear turning point. So I went to a contemplative school here in town called Naropa University. And I studied um, on the bachelor's level um, transpersonal psychology. At the time, there was a gentleman coming through. His name was Stanislav Groff. He got, he's the grandfather of transpersonal psychology, major, major dude, and um, someone I really thought was amazing and still do, um, was coming through Naropa. And he was doing what he calls holotropic breath work, which is um, his version of taking people into a trance state to... Um, work out um, what they need to work out. And so during um, this 
period this weekend with Stan Groff, I had a, a moment where I was going through, he has them, these matrices that he can actually um, track and follow. And I was moving through this one and I, the visual inside this trance state was that I was hanging from a cross, um, pinned to the cross and I was asking to be taken home. Um, I wanted to go out of this material world into another world. I was tired of this world. And I, and I had thought of, I had, I had liked psychedelics for that reason. I wanted out of this world. And, and in this moment, I was hanging from the cross and asking to go home. The response was, you're here. This is your responsibility. You can't come home. You're not allowed to at this moment because you have to, you have to take care of Isabella. You have to take care of your daughter. And it was somatic. It was resonant. It changed me. Um, I never, um, from that day on, um, of course, fleeting moments of like, oh, fuck. I should just kill myself just because the pattern was so entrenched in my psyche but I had never really seriously contemplated suicide ever again. And I made the commitment to stay on the planet and learn how to raise my daughter no matter what. How old was she when you had that experience? She was three. Wow. Yeah. So the first three years of her life, you were struggling with even being alive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Clearly, for three, the first three years of my daughter's life, I was, um, I could, I could barely be present. Luckily, that she was mostly with her mother, mm -hmm. even though we were in the same house. I just didn't have the, I didn't have the psychic wherewithal to deal. I didn't know how to deal. It was overwhelming. And then this event happened, and it rooted me. I, I, um, I'm a believer in trance state awakenings and their potentiality um, and this was um, what really um, showed me that it can be true we can see the other world somehow some way and um, change and it rooted me it gave me uh, the clear understanding that I was supposed to stay here and that I wouldn't go home what I perceived to be home or in the other life till my job here was done and it's been it's been amazing because it's um after that decision or if that after that understanding then i had to make the commitment to figure out how to parent how to be in relationship with someone how to really be in relationship with someone so that was the beginning mm -hmm. of becoming father yeah i had never even really played or recalled playing you know in my life i, w I was terrified of of playing with my daughter for one thing, I didn't know how to play with, she liked playing with dolls and sticks and, and pretend world. And I uh, had no, I, um, I took to sports very early on. I, I, it, was, it was much more concrete because the emotional abuse and physical abuse that I had gone through, um, I had left my body so easily that there was just something innate by grounding in sports and a team, it was literal. Uh, you know, throw the ball, catch the ball, run, go get the ball. It was, <laughs> it was really good for me. It kept me, um, it kept me in school. But yeah, I had never even know. I didn't know how to play. I I can remember just crying, 
um, knowing that I would have to go in the room um, with Isabella and play. So what came up for you? Is it like... That I didn't know how to play. Yeah. I didn't know how to pretend. Yeah. I didn't know how to relate. I didn't know how to make make believe. I didn't know how to be the feminine energy. I didn't know how. I wasn't I, I wasn't over exaggerated masculinity. Um, because I was so afraid. I was I was yeah. in so much terror that I just blew up my masculinity and thought that aggression and violence and getting bigger and louder and uh, competition and performance was the way that I was the way. So here's this little being that you've been now directed by some force to take care of and to connect with. And the only way she's going to connect with you is through play, imagination, creativity. And you had no idea how to do it. None. None. Yeah, none. I really had none. I had no idea. She could talk. She could use a stick and talk with the stick for, I'm not even exaggerating, an hour. I couldn't even, like, sit still for 30 seconds. <laughs> so it was two different worlds coming together. And so did that ever shift for you, too? Did you ever learn how to connect in some way? You know, I did. I, you know, the thing about fathering and parenting, and, I, and of course I'm talking from my biased experience, is there's never a point where you think you've done a very good job of anything. Nothing. It's, it makes me want to cry right now. You know, it, you just always come up short. And um, it's hard to see where you didn't come up short whenever there's a reflection but I think I made emotional connection. I can tell now that we have emotional connection. Even now, I'm still, you know, I haven't had a drink for, I think, 19 years now. However, like, that was just the superficial beginning. The depth of um, how I dissociated from life and pulled away from relationship was... I, it's hard for me to even articulate it now. It was so mind-blowing. So for me to make connection with people is even challenging now. I have um, some very close friends, and that's it. My, my, my sphere of people isn't that big, uh, unless I'm teaching because I have a reason. It's tactile. I did, you know, it taught me how to soften. It taught me how to play differently. Uh, I still played, you know, I wrestled with her a lot, but I learned how to be soft in that. And I had never been soft before, not, not that I recall. My mother, after years, has told me that I was a very soft child, but I have no recollection of that. Mm, so um, you had the softness when you were younger, like you experienced with her. Yeah. You developed a, a hardening, rightfully so, to get through the world. And you came a little bit back to your softness. Did Isabella ever gain any of that benefit of your strength or your masculinity or your power or that embodiment? Um, being a parent, it's like um, being in the same fishbowl. It's hard to, like, there's so much 
projection transference and counter-transference occurring, it's hard to understand what's hers and mine. But what we do is we get reflections from other people, from conversations with other people. And um, I know I know what I tried to do was be truthful with her. And and I think truth is powerful. That's that's the power that was innately in me prior to having to wield it as a sword, I think. And that recently and, and throughout her life, I've had people say what a powerful young woman she is, what a powerful presence she is. She's strong. Um, she's a, a very strong human being. And I, I think that kind of honesty that I gave her and, and, and grit, if you will, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I have all the privileges in the world that a blue collar family has. Um, and I'm also a street rap kind of guy, you know, um, um, I did a lot of running around the drug culture in the streets, was in a lot of situations that um, I think helped me um, uh, prepare Isabella for and truthfully prepare her for like this beautiful and radical, um, glorious and very um, insane world at times. She's a powerful, strong woman, undoubtedly. It sounds like I, there's some sort of tie between you two. You learned a softness from her, and maybe she learned some of this grittiness from you. Yeah, I mean, she's given me, I think, much more than I've ever given her. You know, having a a, a, a young woman, a young being in a culture where I was taught objectification and oppression, and it's endless what I've seen through her. So she is definitely, she's, ta she's taught me how to look at other women, other people, and um, realize that they have feelings and, and care and don't want to be harmed and want to be loved. And I got that all from her, all from her. You know, one time I was in the kitchen with her and I was looking down at her and I was very, I was uptight and, and angry and scared and I was washing dishes and I looked down and she said, Daddy, those are mean eyes. And from that day on, I never tried to make mean eyes again. I'm sure I made mean eyes, but I don't make as mean eyes anymore to anybody. My mean eyes are softening. Um, and that was all because of her. So if you could go back in time and say something to Stephen in the parking lot of the women's health clinic, what would you say to him? I would say that um, you're not a bad guy, bro. That um, you're not inherently evil. You're not inherently bad. You went through some shit that um, gave you a perception and a set of tools to keep you safe in the world. If you honestly, with integrity, commit to freedom, you're going to be okay, bro. You're not going to hurt her. And... Uh, you know, I would just, I, I even do it now I, to, to be more kind and compassionate to myself. Whatever words would come out to do that, I would continue to do. Because that's really, that's really for me is, um, you know, I realized that this grand protection against the world was really uh, a grand um, oppression of myself, beating up of myself, a self-hatred that ran really, really deep. And then um, 
I don't have to hate myself for what I've done because it is what it is. And it taught me how to be here with a loving heart. And um, what I went through was super important in the human I am now. I would just be kind. Yeah. I've heard you say a few times this idea of freedom and that you wanted to know freedom. One of the reasons why you kept sticking around. What does that mean to you today? Yeah. You know, very clearly, freedom clearly um, is a product of relationship to self and other. And that freedom only exists when I quit oppressing myself and others. When I eradicate um, the sense that that other or myself are objects of any sort. That my freedom lies in the way I treat myself and others. That's it. It's a direct reflection of how um, I am treating and in relationship to the world. And it has to do with kindness and care. The more kind and caring I am through whatever's occurring, the more liberated I am. The more um, accusatory and blameful I am, the more bound I am. That um, freedom is not something that can be attained alone. That's a powerful statement. Yeah. Because we have all these images of go to the monastery, go to the mountaintop, go away and be alone. And you're sitting here, and you're, you're a pretty tough guy. You get a lot of tattoos and <laughs> hardcore. And you're saying freedom comes through relationship. Yeah, I do. And I even, the, the people that are going up into the mountains ultimately are creating relationship with the divine. It can't occur. I think even a quicker, a quicker path there um, is in relationship with each other, with form, not the formless. The formless relationship is key, but the form relationship is critical. We're here in form. Form can't be denied, so relationship through form can't not denied for me. So I'm really clear that um, I can't avoid relationship and attain liberation, which is another word I use for freedom, mm -hmm. is that I have to commit to um, uh, relationship. And I hear, you know, you came from a, a world when you were younger where relationship and people were dangerous and to come to a place now where you're like no people in relationship are my path to freedom is um i mean for me is, is hopeful yeah as i say it and you're saying it is very hopeful you know i feel like a a, a little boy starting on the journey um, I feel like this is, I'm just beginning to get this, you know, it's quite ironic. 18 years old, Isabella just turned and um, I'm for the, I'm just realizing how crucial the relationship is even more now <laughs> as she's ready to leave the house. So it's quite ironic for me to say that relationship is the key when most of my life was to avoid it. I mean, I still do, <laughs> you know. Very easily I isolate. I'm hearing all these gifts that you receive through becoming a father. And I wonder if there's another one that you'd be willing to share. You know, there's many. Um, I can think of one that just pops right in my mind because I had um, dealt with it for so many years of my life. And um, so I was 
very much raised on pornography as a young boy. I remember finding magazines of my grandfather's and my father's and that pornography and the use of pornography as a drug, really, as a daily experience since I was a young boy um, was was happening in my life when I when Isabella was conceived and born. And it was a struggle. It was a it was a place of great shame. It was a place of um, um, deceit and pain, even when I was trying to be truthful in my uh, new life, so to speak. And, and I was overwhelmed with um, pornography use. And it was my contemplation and my facing, you know, there's all sorts of different people being abused in pornography. I don't want to single people out, but we can see that women are getting a pretty shitty part of the stick when it comes to pornography, um, the majority of abuse. And so I started to realize that, that I was partaking in this systemic abuse that I was rationalizing and then trying to go create relationship with my daughter after using pornography and it was um it was it was tearing me apart and it brought me to my knees um and it brought me to my knees to such the extent that I surrendered it and um and now I'm um porn free <laughs> and have been for a, a while that was a gift directly from the relationship that I had with Isabella I could no longer consciously, compassionately look my daughter in the eyes and continue what I was doing. And yet I didn't know how to stop. So it, it, it broke me down. So what was it that broke you down? Was it like an emotional experience or did you have something, a moment or was there? It was an emotional experience of shame and guilt. Like the burden of shame and guilt that I had been taking on i mean i had i had used pornography for the first 12 years of my daughter's life it took that long and now granted um i had gone through phases so then towards the end of my pornography use it was binge so i would go months without using it and then have a binge day and then shame and guilt and then go back and then try to make connection with my daughter and it kept me i felt like I felt like I was deceiving my daughter. And so it was, it was actually the overwhelming shame and guilt of having a daughter and using pornography and using women through visualization um, and having a daughter. I, I just couldn't bear it. And so finally it broke me down. I feel very lucky. I just heard this stat that came out of Pornhub, 61 million hours of porn daily. Um, for just on this one site, which um, equates to some incredible number of, of, of time. I don't know that, but 61 million hours of this culture. So just the fact that um, I'm free today from pornography is like mind blowing and um, um, a gift. So I just have one last question for you. Where has this process of discovering freedom and connection brought you to today in your life? So my daughter Isabella is about to take off in September to go away to school. My wife Sarah and I are in the process of having a van built out, a mini RV, and we have brought forth a project called Earth 8 Project. 
which is Sarah and myself taking off in our van and um, traveling through this country, stopping at various places, creating relationship, looking for relation, being in relationship with the world, really going out to um, with the intent to create conversation around how can we be more kind? Particularly, how can we be more kind in what we're eating? And how um, our diet and what we're eating has such an impact on our individual selves and globally through um, humans and the animals that we're eating. And a dialogue around that. We're interested in the dialogue. We're interested in getting into relationship and conversation, which, you know, like I said, I was terrified of before. So becoming father has um, given me the courage, at least in this moment, obviously we're not in the van yet, but to um, decide to go out and look for a relationship and look for dialogue and communication, which was um, something that I didn't look for before. So Earth 8 Project is Sarah and myself vlogging conversations and um, experiences with people and life, traveling cross country, talking about how to be kind, how to be kind. How can we be kind in real time? How can we be kind through our actions, not just our words, but our actions, particularly in what we're eating? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is focused mainly towards a, a vegan diet or Absolutely. an animal-free diet. Yes, ethical veganism. Ethical veganism. Yeah. So um, Sarah and myself believe that it can't be just about the diet, the, the ethics of this whole thing, that veganism is an ethical stance. It's a stance on alleviating suffering, not only for these beautiful animals that we're eating and killing, but for ourselves. Um, number one killer in this day and age is heart disease, dire directly related to the animals we're eating, and the degradation and the destruction of our biosphere, planet Earth, from water to forest to land, all being um, destroyed for animal agriculture. So um, it has to be, we believe, an ethical dialogue. Um, and that's a scary one, right? But it has to be about ethics, about why are we here as a species? Why are we here as people? Is it just about taking care of myself and my immediate family, or is it something greater? So the sense of responsibility has broadened beyond just your daughter now to the whole entire world. <laughs> yes, yeah, because I realized that I'm not only a steward of this one individual, but I'm a steward of all my brothers and sisters uh, and all beings and the biosphere because we're all connected, we're all interrelated. If I create harm to you, then I'm creating harm everywhere. If I'm creating kindness with you, I'm creating kindness everywhere. I can't sit back and watch my brothers and sisters and my planet go without um, some sort of action. So this is all I know to do now, <laughs> is go out and at least start talking about it. Thank you, Stephen, for coming. Thank you for sharing your gifts. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I feel um, a kinship with you. So um, I'm very excited for what you bring to the world. So it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. <laughs>